Hey friends, welcome to season four of Deeper Still. My name is Sue Ann Camfield, and I have the joy of being the host of this podcast where we carve out space for meaningful conversation about God and life and the places he calls us to go deeper still. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome to the Deeper Still community. And for those of you who have been part of this conversation for the last couple of years, Welcome back. I am so excited to be kicking off a new season. I've missed being in the studio. I have missed my conversation partners and I have missed hearing from all of you. So thanks so much for tuning in today. Well, we've got some exciting things to talk about today. I can't wait to introduce you to our first guest. But before we dive in, I wanted to call your attention to one thing and tell you about some things that I'm excited about. Maybe you've noticed, uh, actually I hope you have, that we have a new design for the Deeper Still logo. It was designed by my friend Mary Kay, a huge shout out to her and all her creativity and hard work. And we also added a fun new little tagline, and that's because Deeper Still is broadening and expanding our audience. You know, when I started this podcast, I did it as a teaching ministry during the pandemic to our women's ministry here at Christ Church, where I serve on staff. And now we are in a season of growing beyond that to reach more people. And so I wanted to say thanks to my local church, Christ Church, here in the western suburbs of Chicago for being such a source of support and encouragement and producing Deeper Still and partnership with me. There is nothing like being part of a local church and I'm so excited to continue to expand and grow our audience. So thanks so much for being part of that. I can't wait to see what God does. Well, this season, we're going to be hearing from a lot of different voices who are going to be encouraging and challenging us to go deeper still in a lot of different ways. And I can't wait for you to hear their stories. But today, I'm especially excited to kick off season four by welcoming to Deeper Still pastor and author Sharon Hottie Miller. Sharon has her PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and is a teaching pastor at Bright City Church in Durham, North Carolina, which she co-founded with her husband, Ike. Sharon is the author of three books, including The Cost of Control, Why We Crave It, The Anxiety It Gives Us, and The Real Power God Promises, which is the book we are going to talk about today. You can find Sharon's other books, Free of Me and Nice, as well as her blog and more information about her at sheworships.com. Sharon has been a regular contributor to places like She Reads Truth, Hermeneutics, and Christianity Today, as well as a host of other publications and blogs. She lives with Ike and their three children in Durham, North Carolina, and is a voice that many pastors and leaders of our day say we need to be listening to, and I agree. So whatever you're doing today, wherever you find yourself, just saddle up, settle in, maybe grab a cup of coffee, invite a friend along and listen in as Sharon and I go deeper still. Well, Sharon, it is so great to have you here at Deeper Still. Thank you so much for saying yes to this invitation. I'm excited. It's been a long time since I've talked to you. <laughs> I know. I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, my word. You know what I was thinking? Um, I was trying to think like the last time I've seen you in person and mm-hmm. I had this like flashback 
to a memory. I don't even know if you remember this. We were both at InterVarsity Press together mm-hmm. and we had just, I was working at IVP at the time and we were um, putting together a focus group to launch a line of books for women by women. I and you that. were there. Yeah. You must have at that time been getting your Masters of Divinity at Trinity. It was PhD, but yeah. That was uh-huh. your PhD. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh my word. It feels like so long ago. (laughs) Yeah, I remember one of the things I remember is I think that was the first time I heard of Jo Saxton because I think she was one of the first books in that line, maybe. Yes. Yes. And so, yeah, I remember that. Isn't that wild? Uh I mean, to think back and I think about some of the other women in that room and just who've gone on to do just some really cool things. And Mm -hmm. to think about at that time, I mean, I look back and think, between then and now, you were getting degrees, you have written books, you have uh, had children, Uh you have launched a church, co-founded a church with your husband. I mean, there's just so much you have done between now and then. And I just think um, it's pretty impressive, number one. And then I just look at you and think, oh my word, all of the things that you have done. And that was probably eight or 10 years ago, if I'm thinking of that right. It might've been even longer I'm trying to think it was probably at least 10 years ago because my, my oldest son is only 10 years old. Okay. And we moved before my second child was born. You did. Okay. It was at least 10 years ago. Okay. Well, I just look at the career you've had and the ministry that you've done. And I just think, first of all, I think it's really impressive. And second of all, I think, wow, this girl's got to be a little bit tired. I am. I'm (laughs) tired. Just listening to you list all those things makes me feel really tired. (laughs) Isn't it it funny how we look back and think, wow, I can't believe I, how have I done all those things? Yeah. Well, I was looking, you know how Facebook reminds you of memories and I got a Facebook memory from five years ago, just like a month or two ago. And I was writing how I, in the post, I said, 10 years from now, I'm going to look back on how we were finishing our, or Ike was finishing his PhD. I already finished mine. And I was working on my first book and we had two children and he was also working a full-time job. And I was like, me 10 years from now is going to look back and be like, that was crazy. (laughs) But then when I read it five years later, I was like, little did she know it would get worse. Like we would, we would add more children and a church, you know, it was just, you know, your capacity just changes, I guess, but uh, we we have done a lot. (laughs) You, you have, it's pretty amazing. And I would love to, I'm so excited to talk about the cost of control today because it's just been an amazing um, book and there's so much good stuff I can't wait to dig into. But I want to take a step back before we get into that because I do want to talk a little bit about your church, about Bright mm-hmm. City Church. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in Durham, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact that you co pastor, you co founded and co pastor a church with your husband. And I just want to start there because you and I both are women in ministry. We're, uh, you, know, you are a female pastor. I'm, I'm in seminary right now, I'm getting my master's of theology. And so hoping to be ordained by our church sometime in the next you know, year or so. And so um, I just think there are people listening, though. We both are in, in churches that uh, fully affirm women in ministry. And there's mm-hmm. people listening that might not have a frame of reference for that. Mm-hmm. They might come from different places and aren't used to women who are pastors or maybe have co-founded a church. And so I wonder... Um, 
if we could start there for two reasons, one, to just set up some context for our audience in that space, um, because I also think that in addition to you as just a, a female pastor and letting people know what that's about, that uh, it's going to set up the context for our conversation about the cost of control. So can you mm-hmm. start us there and share a little bit of your story? Yeah, so my husband and I launched Bright City Church four years ago. We just celebrated our fourth anniversary this past Sunday. Congratulations. Thank you. You're welcome. And that was not something that we ever dreamed of doing. We knew other people that had planted churches. It's very difficult. And we just honestly had no desire to do that. And then we also kind of thought we didn't have the personality for it. But about five years ago, my husband, I just, and we were interviewing for jobs at churches. And then the middle of that process got this vision from God. It's literally the only time that has ever happened in our whole marriage, Mm. like middle of the night vision from God. God saying, you're not supposed to be doing this. You're not supposed to be interviewing at these other churches. I want you to plant a church. And then sending us just confirmation after confirmation after confirmation to the point where we realized, okay, you know, God's being very gracious with us by sending all this confirmation. But at some point we are now being disobedient because this call is very, very clear. And so we started, you know, planning to launch this church and one of the conversations we were having was what my role would be in the church because I, I had never thought I would be a pastor. Just I had spent a lot of time in the Southern Baptist world. And so because of that, I'd sort of created a ministry like outside the local church. You know, I was a speaker and a writer and just kind of thought that was my track. But when we were talking about my role, um, the, the other obstacle I should say is I just had our third child and I was working on my second book. And so my plate was just full, but we are in one of the most highly educated areas in the country. Not everyone knows that, but because of Duke, UNC and NC state. And then we also have what's called the research triangle park, which draws in a lot of really educated people. We have one of the highest ratios of people with PhDs per capita here in this area. And so women are leading in every sector. They are professors, they are doctors, they are CEOs here. But because we're in the Bible Belt, women are by and large not leading, especially in more evangelical churches, they're not leading at all. And so my husband was really believed strongly that if we are going to be a good steward of the church in this area and modeling for women how to use your leadership gifts for the kingdom of God, then I need to be doing that myself. And so initially when we launched, I had kind of a limited, the scope of my role was teaching pastor. And that was intended to basically say, I'm not going to be doing, um, you know, leading so much. Like I'll be teaching. I'm not going to be on call as often for pastoral care, that kind of a thing. I just didn't have the bandwidth for it. But as the kids have gotten older now, I've shifted back into more of like a co-lead pastor role. But that's how I, you know, took the position. And it, it really has been remarkable. We expected some pushback because we are in the South and we received no pushback. None. Wow. 
Wow. Wow. And granted, we are in Durham is this very progressive enclave in North Carolina. And so we are like culturally different than the rest of the state. But still, we are in the South. (laughs) We're in North Carolina. And so it it was very clear to me this was something that we weren't sticking our necks out. God had gone ahead of us and we were following him. And it, it was really, really encouraging. So yeah, that's how I took my position. And then we launched the church and we were doing our thing for a year and a half. And then the pandemic hit and, you know, <laughs> and then we are. <laughs> and then the pandemic hit. Uh-huh. Here we are. Well, thanks for sharing that story because I do think it's so important. Like I said, we, um, I, I'm so thankful to serve at a church who affirms women in ministry. And I think sometimes people just forget that not all churches do that, especially in our context. And so I appreciate you sharing your story and for you and Ike, just having the courage to go where God has called you and to see the fruit from that, even in the midst of a pandemic. And you and I were talking a little bit um, before we started recording of just about how difficult uh, your church was 18 months old when the pandemic hit. I mean, I, I just can't, as someone on staff at a church, I can't even imagine 18 months in and having to wade through everything this pandemic has mm-hmm. thrown at us. And so well done. Thank you. Well, let's talk about the cost of control, because like I said, there's so much to get at. And part of your impetus for writing this book came out of a period in, of your life before the pandemic, when mm-hmm. you were doing a little research and just noticing just the rates of anxiety uh, all around you. You said you were working with young people at the time and noticing just how anxious people were. And then when the pandemic hit, um, let me back up that, you know, part of that is we think that anxiety comes so often from the pace of life, right? The fragmentation that we talk about. Mm -hmm. And when the pandemic hit, you shared that, um, you know, the pace of life halted for people Mm -hmm. and anxiety, instead of going down as Mm -hmm. we slowed our lives, it actually went up. Mm -hmm. And so talk a little bit about what you learned during the pandemic and specifically Mm -hmm. that relationship with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you said, I, for a couple of years, had been paying close attention to this trend of anxiety. We live in a college town. You know, we have a lot of college students at our church. And I felt like every conversation I was having with college students was about anxiety. I mean, it was really weird. And we, I, I went to college here. I went to Duke undergrad and, and it was very stressful. We had, when I was an undergrad student, they had coined this term for this sort of in, um, unstated expectation for students, which was effortless perfection. And so that's kind of like the culture at Duke. It's, it's very high pressure. And so people were very, very stressed, but what I was seeing in the last couple of years was different. You know, when I was in undergrad, the stress was making people unhealthy, but it wasn't, I never saw people having panic attacks. I never saw them really like paralyzed by it in the way there, there was just something very different. And because I know that it, it's not that school has suddenly become more stressful, something else had changed. And so I was trying to figure out what that was just from a pastoral perspective, like how do we how do we address this? And the reality is it's multifaceted. There's been a lot of research done on what the rise in anxiety, how it correlates with the introduction of the smartphone. 
And I think that smartphone has been, and the internet has been a little bit of a Pandora's box that has, you know, unleashed a lot of different factors into the world. And one of those is pace. You know, we are overconnected. There's, you know, we're, we're constantly exposed to, um, you know, what everyone else is doing that brings in comparison. You know, there, there's a lot going on. But the, the pace of life, you know, needing to slow down there, that idea has launched like a thousand books. You know, there's so many about slowing down and, you know, the ruthless elimination of hurry and all that, which is really important and true. But I felt like there was something else that hadn't been tapped yet. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And when everything came to a dead halt with the pandemic and our schedules were cleared out and, you know, everyone's schedules were, were simplified, you know, even though it, it threw our rhythms into disarray, we were actually slowing down and yet anxiety was worse than ever. And as I was watching how people responded to the pandemic, that was the thing that was the missing puzzle piece of another source of anxiety was our relationship with control mm -hmm. and how many of us, we cope with our anxiety. Anxiety is caused by a lot of different things, but we cope with anxiety by running to control to soothe our anxiety. The problem is anytime you try to control something that you cannot control, it actually makes your anxiety much, much worse. And so a lot of us get stuck in this, this control anxiety cycle where we run to control to soothe our anxiety. That raises our anxiety. So we run to some other form of control to soothe our anxiety. That raises it more. And what is feeding this, this cycle all along the way is our culture, which is promising us control, which is saying on your phone, you have predictability, you have certainty, you can know what the weather is going to be in 10 days, you can know when this package is going to arrive on your doorstep, you can go on the internet and diagnose yourself medically, you know, there, there's all these ways that you can, you can control your body, you can take these supplements to, you know, keep you from gaining weight or from aging, like we're, our consumerism is just kind of founded on this promise of control. And it's a lie. It's an illusion. But we're just constantly taught, you can control this, you can control this. But what it's really doing is just perpetuating this control anxiety cycle. And you could see this playing out when when everything shut down, where, where people are experiencing this loss of control because of the pandemic. And so they're running to the internet looking for information, research, you know, tell me what's going on, tell me what to do. And th that was all a control response, but you could see in real time, it's not producing peace. You know, no, no one spent hours on the internet in April of 2020 <laughs> reading all this research and then walked away, you know, totally Zen, you know, they, they weren't like, uh, I feel better now. This has given me peace. That's, that's, you could watch it just like escalating as everyone's just feeding on it. So yeah. that, that was the missing puzzle piece for me. Well, I, I have to confess because everything you're saying right now, it's, it's funny because when I, I saw the name of the book, The Cost of Control, I thought, you know, well, that's for, that's for control freaks and I'm not a control freak, right? It's for, it's for people who really struggle with control. And then I started reading, like you nailed it. 
right away when you start talking about this illusion of control and how um, you know, the urge to control is so strong. You say that mm-hmm. when it's not there, we imagine it is there mm-hmm. because it's, it's how we want to cope. It's how mm-hmm. we kind of have to survive. And so I just think that illusion of control is so important um, because what, what you get to with it also is that we think we have control. We want to feel like we're in control. But then when all of a sudden we realize that we don't have control, when the illusion is shattered, mm-hmm. we fall apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't think I was wrestling. I wrestled with control either. You know, when I started researching this, I came at it because of what I was seeing in our people and what I was seeing online. You know, it, it was very clear that Christians were spiritually unequipped to face the pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. even though, even though for millennia, Christians have drawn on the spiritual resources of the church and of scripture and, you know, spiritual disciplines and the hope we have in Christ to face, you know, plagues and wars and, you know, all, you know, catastrophes that we were not equipped with those tools, that, that we um, were running to these different illusions of control in order to cope. And so that's a discipleship issue. I could see that. But I also know that my best writing, my best teaching comes from my own conviction over sin. And so as I dug into it, I thought, well, maybe I need to examine this in my own heart and see if this is because I would have never called myself a control freak. But what I think was really happening in my life is I was living in that illusion of control in other ways. And, and, And that's what's so deceptive about it is you can experience success in some ways. Like you can think I don't struggle with controlling my body. That's because your body currently is submitting to you. Like your, your health is good. Your, your weight is what you want it to be. That's not you being at peace with your body. That just means your body is currently cooperating with you. You know, same with even in my leadership is I would have said, I don't struggle with control. I don't yell at our staff. I don't, I'm not domineering. I'm, I'm not leading through fear, but I do have a very strong personality and I know how to stay just the right thing. I don't have to raise my voice. I don't have to be manipulative. I know just the right way to push people to do what I want to do. And to my eyes, it seemed like I don't wrestle with control. I'm, I'm just, you know, very convincing, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and realizing, no, actually you struggle with control in a lot of different ways. It's just worked for you so far, but the, the whole, you know, message of the book, the cost of control is that it actually doesn't work. It's, It's doing damage. Anytime you're controlling something that you're not given to control, it's actually creating widespread brokenness. Mm. You just don't see it yet. Mm. And that was very humbling to me. (laughs) So good. Well, and one of the things I love about the book is you're so honest. You're Mm -hmm. you're very transparent about some of these places where um, you struggle. And I think in in revealing that, you are able to have us all look in a mirror and say, Mm -hmm. oh, wow, me too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes, you got me there. Me too. And so let's talk a little bit more uh, practically about some of these ways. You know, you go into a section in the book that um, 
you talk about how we control. You've already mentioned smartphones and information, which is which is so good, and I think something that we can all relate to. I want to just to kind of tease people's mind because I do want them to go buy the book. I want them to to look at this and read this for themselves. But you talk about I think there's five or six ways. You talk about knowledge, power, money autonomy, theology, and shame. Those are all ways that um, we try to control. And so let's talk about, I love the knowledge piece. And you've already touched on this a little bit because you're Mm -hmm. so right. You say so often when we feel out of control, the first thing that we want to do, and with the invention of the internet and our smartphones, we feel like knowledge is power. And in some ways, knowledge really is power. There's goodness in that. But I think we can all identify with the fact that, like you said, when the pandemic happened and we were all searching for more information, it didn't necessarily lower our anxiety levels or make us feel like we were all um, more in control. And so let's Mm -hmm. talk about knowledge for um, Mm -hmm. a little bit, because I think it's it's just so good. You say uh, in your book, one of the primary ways I cope with uncertainty is by turning to information for a sense of control. I respond to the unknown by trying to know it. And the internet is always ready to help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Um, many of us may not think this is a form of control, but arguably it's the first, arguably it's the first one we go to. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about how we use knowledge to control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was the chapter that personally convicted me most and that I continue to feel (laughs) convicted by and held accountable to. But part of the the book is is really a long meditation on Genesis 3 and that moment where Adam and Eve defy the boundaries that God has given them and reach for more knowledge and more power and this, you know, godlike stature than what God had designed them to have. And that this is the heart of control. Anytime we reach for control, we're just reenacting that moment again and again and again. And this plays out in a lot of different ways that that reach for control. And I think the form that we're most familiar with is power, maybe money, maybe even shame. Shame is a really common way that we try to control people or that people try to control us. But ground zero, Mm. what they're reaching for is knowledge. And we don't associate knowledge as a tool of control but as you just read, it's, it's arguably the first. And this plays out in two different ways. One is that we use knowledge to try to control other people. And I think social media comment sections are sort of predicated on this assumption that if I can just download the right knowledge into your brain, I can change your mind and I can change you. And this was so much of my leadership in the thick of the pandemic, as we were having to make decisions that we knew inevitably were going to disappoint people, every decision we made was going to disappoint someone. But I started thinking, well, if I could walk through the scripture with them, if I could walk through the theological framework that we're using, or if I can connect them with the experts in our church that we have listened to, or the other pastors that we've sought wise counsel from, and I can present all of that to them in just the right way with just the right argument, if I can you know, download that into their brain, then I can change them. I can make them agree with me. And really what I believed is that knowledge and information has more power than it actually has. I, I thought I could 
use it to control them, to engineer an outcome. And it, it doesn't work. And, you know, going back to the cost of control, you know, in the same way that we reenact Genesis 3, we reenact all of its consequences. Anytime we try to, you know, control something that God has not given us control. And so the cost of using knowledge that way is that it created anxiety in me, like control does, it creates anxiety. And so I was the one laying awake at night for hours, tossing and turning, replaying these conversations and thinking if I could just say it this way. Mm-hmm. And we've all been there, you know, in, in really painful situations when maybe you have an adult child who is making really really destructive decisions and thinking if I could just explain it to them this way, then they would, you know, wake up and see what if I said it this way, what if I said it that way? And we are unfortunately just giving more, attributing more power to knowledge and information than it actually possesses. And so it creates anxiety in me. And then it, it strains my relationship even more with them because people can tell when you're pushing them. They can tell if, if you're trying to lead them in a direction that they don't want to go and they'll push back against that. So that's one way that we, we use knowledge to control. But another aspect of control, I sort of define control in two different ways. One is imposing your will on circumstances and people. But another important dimension of control that we don't think of as, as much, but I think is really what we're after is the feeling of control. Mm. And that goes back to the illusion of control. There's been all these studies done that we feel better when we feel in control, whether or not we actually are in control. We're just after that illusion is what we want. So give me something that makes me feel in control. And that is how we responded to the pandemic for a lot of us is we went online thinking I, if I can just find information about this to tell me what is going on, that this will soothe my anxieties, that this will give me peace, that it, I'll, I'll feel more in control. And what we saw is it didn't work. It just mm. fueled it, you know, more and more. It just gave us more questions, you know, more things to be afraid of than before. But but we we run to knowledge and information to control and to feel in control and neither produces the security and stability that we think that it will. And what do we do with that? So what do we what how do we sit in those places when we get to that spot when um, we realize that we can't control it, that uh, mm-hmm. we try rationally to turn it over to God and to mm-hmm. think that he's in control. And we tell ourselves those kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. God is in control. God is in control. I'm going to let God, but it doesn't necessarily reduce our anxiety. And mm-hmm. so what do we, what do we do with that? How do we sit in those moments when our illusion is shattered? Mm-hmm. Well, there's two things. One, and I don't know how helpful this is to other people. I can only say that it was helpful for me was really accepting the reality of the cost of control. That that if I try and push this right here, it is going to make it worse. And that was really sobering for me. You know, with with my husband and I, we're leading this church together and and we don't always agree on decisions for our church. And these are big decisions sometimes, you know, high stakes, kingdom stakes, you know, about what what decision we make. And there have been, ever since I made this connection, there have been these moments where I thought I can push this because I think that 
it's going to hurt our church if we don't do this the way I think we should do it. That's what's at stake is, is I think this could be bad for our church. But if I push this and get my way, it will cost my marriage. Mm -hmm. And I may not see that today. I might not see that tomorrow. I might not see it for several years from now. But is it worth the cost to my marriage to push in this direction? And the answer is almost always no. It is not worth the cost to my marriage. And so that that has been just living in reality has been really helpful for me. And, and that's much, much harder to do when it is someone you love making destructive decisions and, and everything in you wants to, you know, snatch them out of the jaws of self-destruction. And it's not that we aren't called to speak into their lives or to plead with them. But at some point when we realize if I keep pushing in this direction, not only is it not going to work, but it is going to break my relationship with them possibly irreparably mm. forever. Mm. And that is, that's a, a really hard reality to swallow, but, but it's so, so important to, to decide at some point, I can't save this person, but do I at least want to preserve my relationship with them so that hopefully when they wake up from this, they can come back, you know, and they have a place to come back to. And so that has been a very different question for me. But then the other piece that I get into at the very end of the book is that God hasn't given us control, but he has given us agency. And so he doesn't simply say, you know, let go and let God. He doesn't say just roll over and play dead and let me, you know, do everything. God invites us into his mission and asks us to partner with him in influence. And so the, the other question I ask is, well, what influence do I have? And what does it look like for me to operate within that influence? You know, and, and it could just be praying for them at some point, but making sure that to whatever degree I do have influence in a situation, doing everything I can to do that well. But the difference between agency and control, the difference between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 is honoring our human limitations, that, that we cannot determine outcomes. And as soon as we believe that we can is when we switch from Genesis 2, Garden of Eden, to Genesis 3, where I don't want these boundaries. I don't want God you know, being in control. I want to be in control. Mm -hmm. And so those have been really helpful for me. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about those differences between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, because mm -hmm. you do such a great job. Um, Seeding that theologically throughout the book, you use great scriptural examples and you keep coming back to the story of the garden. And you share about like even talking about knowledge, for example, that knowledge God intended for good, mm -hmm. right? He intended it as mm -hmm. a good thing. But when we don't accept our limitations, that's when things really start to fall apart. And so right. talk a little bit, go back to the garden and unpack mm -hmm. that a little bit more for us. Yeah. So I... At the very end of the book, I, after I've spent all this time meditating on Genesis 3 and unpacking everything that happened, I turn back to Genesis 2 and, and look at how, even though Adam and Eve were not in charge of the garden, they were also not robots. They weren't puppets. They weren't 
prisoners. God actually commissioned them with great purpose and great influence and gave them authority and power. And so they're, they're operating in that. And when we're talking about agency, which is a dis, a psychological term that I define as the power to influence ourselves and our circumstances. And so the operative word there being influence, not control. Mm. But getting back to that, that power where we see Adam and Eve really flourishing and, and actually truly free, you know, they're, they're not free because of the absence of boundaries. They're free because of their boundaries. How do we restore ourselves to that influence that we were created for? And I see, and I think there's maybe six forms of agency. I can't remember. I should know this. Six or seven. <laughs> I have your book right here. I you can, can tell like you. Count them. Uh, but yeah, we see a number of different forms of agency. So one form of agency that we see is naming and ordering. We first see God, you know, ordering the chaos, you know, and then he commissions Adam into that work. He says, you know, don't control it, but order it, you know, name and order. And this is a really powerful form of influence that we have been given. And one one way that this plays out practically, going back to the pandemic, when I was home with my kids, my daughter was two. And so it, my kids were really, really little. I was thrown into homeschooling them. I'm, I'm not... I don't have that spiritual gift of teaching children. <laughs> and so it was a hot mess. And then we're also leading our church. So all this is happening... My kids, you know, we can't leave the house. My kids are loud all the time. I feel really out of control. And so I respond to this by yelling all the time because mm. if my kids are loud, I'm going to be louder. I can be louder. And so I'm going to dominate you with the volume of my voice. That was a control response. And it did not work. And instead, it just made our house louder. I was breaking my relationship with my kids. I was having to apologize to them all the time. The cost of control, you know, right there playing out in real time in our house. Now, what I eventually did instead that really helped instead of yelling at my kids to get them to submit is I gave them a schedule. <laughs> After we did some research and, you know, talked to people who knew more than we did, we realized part of what was missing was just a rhythm for their days and predictability and, and just a schedule for our days. Hmm. And so we ordered our days around a schedule and it didn't solve everything. You know, it, it didn't magically turn my children into, you know, model citizens, but it helped a lot. Yeah. And it helped without the fallout of breaking my relationship with them. You know, it, it was really honoring their, their persons in a way that control does not. And so naming and ordering is a really powerful form of agency that we have available to us. Another form is restoring limits and operating within limits. I've said many times that that difference between Genesis 2 and 3 is Adam and Eve defying their limits. And part of what has happened with our smartphones 
is those limitations, those human limitations of not knowing everything that's happening in the world at all times has been taken away. We've been granted this godlike omniscience without godlike omnipotence. And so mm. it's constantly overwhelming our souls. We cannot process everything that is happening in the world at all. Only God can do that. And so it, it's kind of like climbing back down off the Tower of Babel in some sense and operating within the limitations that God designed us to have. And that's actually a form of agency is, is honoring those limitations, living, you know, with Sabbath, you know, operating within Sabbath is, is another powerful way we can do that. So those are just two forms of, of agency that we see in Genesis one and two. Well, and it's so good because we're so awful at accepting our limitations, yeah. right? It's, uh -huh. it's just, it, it is not natural for us uh -huh. to say, okay, I am limited. Uh -huh. And so I am going to set boundaries for myself so uh -huh. that I can operate within the limitations that, that God actually intended for us as human beings to live uh -huh. within. Yeah. And so it, it, using those examples is such, uh -huh. is so helpful because I think we don't always know what to do, uh -huh. right? We, yeah. we can say, yeah, of course I'm limited, but uh -huh. what is, that look like? How, yeah. do we, how do we lean into that and live that out? Well, and part of what I realized with my husband is we, our struggles with control are very different. I've already mentioned mine is very much knowledge and information. I'm very strong with my words. And so I think I can, I overestimate my influence mm -hmm. because of that. But with my husband, control played out in a way that doesn't look at all like control. It just looked like him being a really good pastor, which was him never taking a break and always believing that basically without him, if he stopped, the church would fall apart. Hmm. And so he was always going to be the first to show up on Sunday and the last to leave. And, you know, he's, he's always going to be there. And, and if someone else needs a break, he'll take their work for them. And this looks like, sainthood, basically. But he would be the first to admit some of this was actually about control. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really tempting for mothers as well, that, that we it can look like we are really good moms when we're never taking a break and we're constantly laying ourselves down when really it's about control. Mm -hmm. And that's why Sabbath is so important, is not just for you to rest, but for you to remember you do not make the world spin on its axis, not in your family, not in your church, whatever it is. And as soon, when you believe that, it will crush you. Mm. And so Sabbath reminds us of the right order of things and helps us to operate within those important human limitations. It's so, so good. And I'm so glad you brought up parenting and just motherhood, especially because I, I do think it takes on another form, so many different forms, but as parents, right? It's like, there's just so many things we want our children to um, do. We want them to be certain kind of people. And, and so I think hearing that in those terms is so helpful. I just sent my son on a, he's 19. Mm -hmm. He um, just today, I didn't sleep last night because he's flying over an ocean to Germany uh, to go to Albania on a mission trip. And I like, he's going by himself. He's meeting people oh, there he's man. never met before. And so he was at the airport yesterday at O'Hare. He had a quick layover. And so I stopped to, to just went down to see him. And I'm asking all these questions about like, well, 
what do you know where you're staying? Do you know who, you know, like, I didn't think they were hard questions, you know, but it's like, okay, do you know where you're meeting people at the airport? Do you know how you're getting anywhere? Do you know your agenda? You know? And he's like, yeah. Nope, I'm, I'm pretty just, you know, I'm just showing up mom. I'm like, okay. Okay. And so as our, as our kids get older, it gets harder and harder yeah. because I want to say, Oh my word. Like how yeah. can you, and he's a great kid and he's responsible and all of those things. Yeah. So I'm not throwing him under the bus, but he's a 19 year old boy. Yeah. Right. And so what I wanted to do was jump in and say, okay, let's real quick, let's call this person and email this person. And he's like, I got it, mom. And so yeah. I have just learned like, I get to let go. Right. Yeah. I, I have to step back and say, I can't control yeah. this. And I need to trust that whether it's with our children or whether it's with our ministry or whether it's at whatever place we have agency, that God is ultimately the one mm -hmm. that is transforming and working and sanctifying and, and doing what God does mm -hmm. in a way that only he can do. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's so hard with parenting because God grants us a lot of agency in our kids' lives. We have tremendous influence in our kids' lives. And it's really important that we take that seriously and influence them to the best of our ability. But as soon as we believe that we are in charge of the outcomes, yeah. that is when we stray into that realm of control. And we can really damage our relationship with mm -hmm. our children if we don't discern that difference. And that's something that is a constant source of prayer for me because we will not see the consequences of that right away. We might not see it for 10, even 20 years. Mm. And at that point, the damage is not easily undone. And so it, that's very sobering to me, just asking, okay, God, am I, am I operating within my God-given influence in my kids' lives or am I trying to exert a power over them that you have actually not given to me to mm. have. And that that's mm. really, I think you really need the Holy Spirit to search our hearts on that. Amen. A amen. And parents everywhere are saying amen on that one for sure. For sure. Um, well, Sharon, this is just so much good stuff to think about so much. I, I love that you're pointing to us um, to keep asking, what is the cost? Like we can control this situation, but at what cost? At what mm -hmm. cost do my relationship with the Lord, at what at what cost to my relationship with the people I love, at what cost to my my ministry or my work, at what cost to myself. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want our listeners to hold on to that because I think that's something as we enter into all kinds of different situations and we feel ourselves wanting to grab onto control, right? And mm -hmm. when things start to get out of control, what we do is want to hold tighter. Mm -hmm. It's not our nature to let go. We just want to grab yeah. on tighter and yeah. to ask ourselves, what is what is the cost here? Yeah. So yeah. thank you for, for pointing us in that direction. It's so wise and so good. Well, thank you. All right. Well, our time is about up. I have one last question for you um, that I've been asking everybody who comes on the show because the show is called uh, Deeper Still. And one mm -hmm. of our heartbeats of the show is that we really believe that um, – you know, God calls us to all kinds of places, but he's never done with us. And sometimes he calls us somewhere or he asks us to do something or he's doing a work in our lives. And, and we think we've gotten to this place where, all right, I'm pretty good. Like, all right, I've gotten this figured out, or maybe I'm, yeah. I'm feeling a little comfortable. And it's just when we get to that place that God invites us to go deeper. 
And just when we, he invites us to go a little deeper, he invites us to go a little deeper still. And mm-hmm. you have been sharing examples of that throughout this whole um, conversation. And so I appreciate that. But I'm going to put you on the spot and just ask, what is a place in your life right now, presently, mm-hmm. that you feel like God might be calling you to go deeper still? So I can't remember if I mentioned this before we started recording or after, but I'm an Enneagram 7, and so I don't like pain. I really want to run from it or distance myself from it. But this has been a very painful season of ministry just because of the pandemic, and I have been wounded because of it. And I understand that if I choose not to deal with those wounds, I will become really unhealthy in as a leader. And so I don't really have that option if I want to stay in ministry for the long haul. And so I'm having to, right now, we, we have a wonderful marriage counselor that we've had for most of our marriage. And so I've had the privilege of being able to talk through some of that with her. But a big part of my work right now is forgiveness and Mm -hmm. asking God to help me to forgive. And I will not be able to endure if I don't, that's, that's the stakes. And so that, that is my primary spiritual work in this season of ministry is forgiveness. Mm, That's really powerful. Really beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. I know we were talking a little bit Um, before we came on air of just what a difficult season this has been for so many pastors, so many pastors facing burnout, so many pastors who have left the ministry Mm -hmm. uh, because of just how difficult the pandemic has been. And so to hear you just admit that you're at a place of leaning into that and and stepping into the place where you can forgive and heal is just really beautiful. So I'm sure you've encouraged other people listening today uh, with that answer, as well as just with everything you shared today. So Sharon, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Blessings on your church, blessings on uh, the continued just uh, impact and influence of this book and all the work that you're doing. So appreciate you. Thank you. Well, friends, that wraps up our time for today. Just so many good things to chew on and process and think about. So I hope you do take what you heard today, take what you learned, take how God was moving in your life, share it with a friend or a spouse or maybe a small group, invite them into the conversation and let God change you in the process. I do hope that you will check out more of Sharon's work and her ministry and her books at sheworships.com. You can also follow her on Instagram at Sharon Miller. And whatever you do, you should definitely just go to Amazon right now and buy a copy of The Cost of Control, Why We Crave It, The Anxiety It Gives Us, and The Real Power God Promises. I promise you, you will not regret reading this book. It's so good. There's also some discussion questions at the end of each chapter. There's also some discussion questions at the end of each chapter. And so it's great to do with a small group or some neighbors or your friends and just dig in a little bit to to what you have been learning about today. Well, we'll be back in two weeks with another great episode. So be sure to tune back in. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to Deeper Still on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find me on Instagram at Sue Campfield. Drop me a comment. Let me know what you thought. I would love to hear from you. 
But hey, until then, until we see you again, have an awesome day. And don't forget to ask where God might be calling you to go deeper still. Deeper still.